right. Welcome to Everything Trying to Kill You. I'm Mary Kay. I'm Megan. And today we're going to talk to you about the girl with all the gifts. And it has to do with zombies, but they call them hungries. So we were thinking about an icebreaker earlier. And I tried to take a couple of quizzes about how long would you survive the apocalypse, but they were dumb. They were like checklists and they were too objective to be realistic. And like right before we started recording, uh, me and Megan were like, what should we do? And then Megan said that I, well, I found a study, apparently scientists now, I'm sure based on tons of real good facts, have said that if a zombie apocalypse really did happen, that in less than 100 days, there would likely be only 300 or less people left on the entire planet, which means we're probably all going to die. And that even though I thought before that maybe I could survive a zombie apocalypse, the entire population that has been whittled down to 300 or less, like I'm probably not going to be in that. The odds are not in my favor. Yeah, and then I said it depends on where I am in the world. Like if I'm in Atlanta, everybody's going to be going crazy and I'll probably die from looting. Maybe not looting, but like people freaking out and thinking that. And then I was like, wait, let's stop this and start recording and then say it all again. (laughs) Because we've already back on that, though. I feel like if I was in Atlanta, I'd probably die right away. Because I'm right, but I am right by the stadium, which is probably going to be the safe place because they usually turn the stadium into like evacuation center, like the yeah, like all that. And then maybe I could like sprint over there because I'm like less, I'm like maybe a mile from there. Like if I was out in McDonough, like in the country, like near my mother or father, it would be like we're fine. Like we're just going to bunker down. Like would we kill each other? Maybe. We're a lot alike. <laughs> so. So maybe, but how, so how do you think you'd die? That I, I don't think I would actually die from a zombie. I think I could probably take down zombies just fine. I, you know, I've spent my whole life playing Resident Evil and all these little zombie video games. Like I am. It's practice, dude. Geared. Practice makes perfect. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure it would be some like wilderness bullshit that would kill me. Like the actual, the survival part. Not the combat part, the survival. That makes sense. I don't like camping. I wouldn't do well. Well, I mean, who, who, what kind of like elegant grown women actually enjoy camping? No, you depress the hot hippie guy. Like nobody, nobody actually wants to sleep on the ground. Not when there's an option for a bed. I mean, hiking is one thing, right? My friend Patty recently was like, Chris and I are going to go camping next month if you and Andrew want to join. And I was like, I really love you, but no, absolutely. I'm not even going to pretend to come up with a good reason on why I'm not going to go camping. Oh, I'll get wasted at the bonfire. And then I'm going to go back to my bed. Or sleep in the car. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm just being honest. Well, it's just you can't account for the elements. You know, who wants to sleep in a puddle? No one. What would your most important item be? Like if you had a zombie apocalypse was coming and you had to evacuate immediately, what three things would you grab? Ooh, that's a good, that is a good ass question. I mean, I don't think that I have the things that I would want from the apocalypse, but like I would probably need like, well, I used to, but then, you know, they break and stuff, which is bad, but I would want like a water purifier thing. Like when I, when I did study abroad, they were like, just get the bottle that does it for you. And it has, like, iodine tablets in it and shit. Um, this is before I grew out of my camping face. Like, I was fine. I used to be fine with it. But, but then, I mean, I mean, once your hips get so wide, like, you can't be sleeping on the ground. Everything, you know. 
I understand. Yeah, thank you. I thought you would understand, but for our for our skinny ass listeners, anyway, I would need a knife, which I definitely have a knife. I think those were two that were on mine. I like the little water purifier they have now. That's like the little straw, so you can like straight up drink like right out of yeah. Anything. Yeah, it was like that. Yeah, yeah. So we need to get some of those when the paychecks come in. Just because we won't be able to stop thinking about it until we do. <laughs> okay. What else? What were your other two? I think originally I was like, I'm going to take food, but I feel like it wouldn't really be useful. So maybe I'll just be real simple and I'll get like a really good, like a backpack. Something to keep all my things in. Something that I can stuff like with some stuff and use it as a pillow. Something I could like beat the shit out of zombies with if I need to. It's multi Yeah, I do have a like a solid backpack that I would probably take. Um couple blankets like a tarp i mean you can always just like steal it a tarp would probably be helpful it would be nice to just have it (laughs) not have to go through that moral relativity type of deal which which actually is one of your first points the ethics behind this science yeah so in the movie i guess to give like a brief little background of that is the world essentially other than like a select few people on this base have been taken over by zombies or hungries and they're keeping the kids in like trying to think of the word it's like a military base but a school but also like a jail it's i think it's more most like a jail it's like a quarantine jail i mean they they wear orange yeah they're restrained all the time yeah they're strapped in wheelchairs they're in little 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 cells like they're in solitary and they're studying them because they have the fungal infection that causes them to be hungry, but it's slightly different because they're the next generation. So it could possibly make them a symbiote? Yeah. Is that what they said? Yeah, yeah, okay. But then they are doing scientific research on these kids. Like they're doing biopsies and whatnot to kind of create a vaccine and to understand this fungal infection that is causing all this turmoil. And so it kind of brings up the point of, you know, science versus morality what's more important knowledge or the morality aspect because you know they're kids and for the most part they're pretty normal kids I mean obviously they're not especially I mean Melanie more so than anybody else is and she's also the only one whose story we really get like the other kids are there and there's maybe like 20 I mean it's smaller than my classroom (laughs) which is one thing that I noticed even in the apocalypse you guys you crowd the classroom. So one thing that I wanted to talk about, about the ethics of it, is like, historically, we, we the, a lot of the psychological research that we have is because people didn't know what they were doing. Like, they didn't know. Preach. You know, yes. Well, they didn't have a code of ethics. The code of ethics, as far as psychological or scientific research goes, where, you know, studies involving actual human people, there wasn't a code of ethics. That's still pretty new in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, so the ethical part of psychology, I like you said, is fairly new. So that's part of it. And the other part is like most of the stuff that we did that we did find out that we never like would have hypothesized came from like accidents, like Phineas Gage with the rod through his head and it was like, oh he's it changed his personality or like the saw blade. But yeah, so it was like, oh this part of the brain does this. We know that because it was damaged and didn't kill him. It's like not the brainstem type deal. That's part of it in the, in like we kind of learned by error 
lot of it. And now it's like, we, I mean, you have very, very smart people make these like deductions. Like if this, then this, hopefully it'll work this time. Let's try. And part of what, what's uh, the doctor, Glenn Close's name, your scientist? Oh my gosh. I don't remember her name. And I'm really mad that I can't remember her name. Now I'm looking it up. I really liked her though. I did not. No. And I'm going to tell you why. I thought she was douchey. I thought she was all for knowledge and in no point considered that she needed to leave this girl alone. Well, what I was thinking about the scientist is that this is what scientists have done historically to when they're studying other humans in the past is that they have to dissociate from them. They can't think that they're humans the same as the same as them. Then like your, your morality does get in the way. Like I couldn't go operate on you. First of all, I don't know what I'm doing, but also because like you're, I couldn't dissociate you from your body, from you as my friend. Does that make sense? That's like, I mean, and I think that's why like psychologists can't have patients that they know to look at them objectively as a, like a, a body of research instead of an actual human. And that character, the, and she's the mad scientist updated. Yeah. Dr. Caroline Caldwell. There we Dr. Go. Caldwell. Yes. So Dr. Caldwell is like your typical mad scientist trope from like your original sci-fi novel, Frankenstein, but updated because she's trying to preserve humanity and get rid of the monsters when normally it's the other way around. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, that was a, a really interesting dichotomy between Dr. Caldwell and Melanie because Melanie didn't really see her as a threat. Like she's the one who calls the number and then uh, her friend on the next day. And because she's a brilliant child, like she's definitely, it seems like the most gifted mentally of the children they have there. But she sees that he's gone and she's like, well, I'm not going to throw anybody else under the bus. She doesn't like feel guilty about it or anything. She's just like, Dr. Caldwell is like, give me a number, which is fucked up also because that gets her out of making a decision. And Melanie's like four. And then it zooms back and it's like her number. It's like, yes, bitch, do it. I love that little girl. I just want to squeeze her. She is, she's amazing. I don't think Dr. Caldwell knew when to stop, which I guess is more so what I meant with like the morality. So, you know, there's the scene where they're in the middle of, I guess, London and the hordes of the Hungries. And there's the one pushing the zombie, the zombie pushing them in the stroller. And then she goes and gets in the way and lifts up the blanket and screams and almost dooms them all. And he's just like, it's not the time for science. Like everybody's dead. You did not, nothing you do at this point is going to be useful anymore. But like, she just can't stop. Which I mean, I get, that's probably like, you know, her life's work. That was her, her goal. And it's probably hard to separate herself from that since that's what she'd been doing for so long. But girl, you almost got everybody killed. Yeah. And it also, it seems like her coping skill, like see if she can dissociate enough to study something, they have to actually experience it. And then Melanie kind of does the opposite. She's like the inverse. Like she, she wants to know what she is, but she doesn't care about like the world at large. She's just like, what am I? And this is another thing that I was kind of inconsistent based on what I know about solitary confinement, which is very little. She still has like all of these social skills, very sweet. And she's not really manipulative the way that we think that we're led to believe she is in the beginning. 
like over the top, like "Good morning, Miss Justino." Good morning, Sergeant. What's his name? The Sergeant dude is Sergeant Parks. Yeah, thank you. Um, she's like, "Good morning, Sergeant Parks," and then the the I think it's Kieran. He straps her into the wheelchair, and she's like, you know, she recites the code for him, and she's like, "I don't want you to get in trouble. Don't forget to fasten this arm thing." And so she's clearly trying to please people who have her. Um, imprisoned, essentially. And she really loves Miss Justina. Like, she is, like, a little bit of a crush, it seems like. Yeah, it's like a platonic crush. It's not like a romantic crush. She just really wants this person to like her. She wants to please her. She wants to impress her. She wants her to be happy with her. She sees her, it seems like, more like a mother figure. Because she doesn't have a mom. And she's the... Miss Justina is the only person that sees any sort of, like, potential in her or treats her at least anyway like she is a person with thoughts and things that I'm sure she latches to that as well yeah like when uh when she puts her hand on her head it's like you know it's sweet you know and it's also like not an inappropriate touch like a teacher could do that to a child and that would be the end of it it's the suspense is built until Melanie writes that story and Miss Justino starts crying. She's like, no, I'll I'll rewrite it. Let me try again. Like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. And then, you know, she doesn't realize that, like, that's their exact situation more than she knows. They have that whole interaction when the sergeant wipes off some of his blocker with his spit and then all go hungry. Like, they turn into hungries. Which, can I just briefly say, I guess since Stranger Things came out, this world has been, or I guess... Our society has been all about some really bad-ass child actors. And the kids in this movie that played all the Hungries, I know there's not a whole lot of, like, speaking roles, but they were fantastic. Can we also talk about the power of pre-adolescent girls with shaved I'm heads? here for it. Because, well, I mean, <laughs> I'm here for that, for sure. I don't know. I mean, I'm still self-conscious. Like, I won't cut my hair off because my whole life people have been like, that's what makes you cute. Like, oh, I guess I can't get rid of that then. That's pretty important. But then you have Sinia, is that her real name? The girl that plays Melanie, and then like Millie Bobby Brown that are just like, shave it, do it, whatever. Here I am. I love it. I taught um, a class on the end of the world this past summer to like gifted middle and high schoolers. And uh, one of the trivia questions that I had a, some bitch and TAs too, like they were awesome. And uh, they they ran like a trivia game for part of our scavenger hunt that we did one of them asked um uh which stranger things character said she said they would shave their head if um if hopper won whatever award and he listed them and like the girl group i think got it right and they were like millie bob brown has already shaved her head like she's already proven herself like that's not for her that's not a big deal she can do it again Plus, like, and then all in literature, anytime you see a woman with long hair, it's like, oh, she's sexy. Like, that's what that means. Like, Porphyria's lover, she gets choked with her own hair. That poem is fucked up beyond recognition. It's awesome. <laughs> but anyway, so we have Melanie's self-loathing, which, and I love it also, that she's really confident in herself, but she doesn't understand what she is. And so she doesn't really have, like, an identity crisis. She's just a naturally inquisitive person. And I wrote Heroes slash Heroine's Journey. Well, you know Hero's Journey, right? The Joseph Campbell thing? Yeah. But typically, it's like your hero 
is presented with a challenge, and then he had like an inciting incident happen, and then he has to descend into the underworld, and he has a mentor, and then he fights the beast, slays the dragon, usually a dragon, not always, but then he comes back to the, yeah, comes back to the regular world, and he's a totally changed and new man, and that is the end of the scene. But the heroine's journey is a little bit different because it's about feminine identity. And like rather like there's usually like part of it is called the initiation and descent to the goddess, which is it's a, I saw Miss Justino, right, as like prototype for who Melanie could be because she's very kind, caring, smart. So she descends to the goddess in the heroine's journey. And then you have like your split and then the the heroine incorporates masculinity into her identity. This narrative in this movie is much closer to the heroine's journey than the hero's journey because she doesn't come back. She doesn't come back. And then also, um, she's not changed. She's the same badass little girl, but she's changed the whole fucking world. Because she's a badass little girl. And her mentor is obviously still alive and kicking. Yeah, that's like part of the prereq is that Miss Justin, like needs to survive. Sergeant, sorry, I thought you were going to live too, but you had to go be a fucking hero. So you're going to die slowly from suffocation. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, but Miss Justino. I love her. Yeah, she's sweet. She's a little, she's a little dumb, a little reckless, but it, it works out for her, so. Yeah. I think in all of us at some point, we had like our own Miss Justino. We had like the one teacher that really like pushed us and believed in us. And I thought the actress that played her, was it Gemma, whatever her last name was, something or another, I thought she did a great job playing her. But of course, you know, I knew that this was based on a book. So I kind of was looking the book up to see what, you know, some of the similarities are, what some of the differences might be. And like the first thing that came up is that, Miss Justineau is supposed to be black. So, you know, and the author at multiple times kind of like, and I had pulled the passages up just in case, and multiple times like went in depth, you know, like Miss Justineau's face stands out because it's such a wonderful, wonderful color. It's dark brown like the woods of the trees in Melanie's rainforest picture whose seeds only grow out of the ashes of a bushfire. And, you know, her hair is long and black and really crinkly, so it looks like a waterfall. Sometimes she ties it up in a knot. So at multiple times the author kind of goes out of their way to describe, you know, Miss Justino as a black woman. And so I was surprised, not surprised. I was not <laughs> surprised to see yeah. that they decided to cast a white woman for it. But at the same time, I was a little surprised, I guess. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I understand the distinction that you're making, but I thought from what I have read also is that in the book, Melanie's white. Oh, maybe. So maybe they switched the genders, or not the genders, the races. Yeah, they switched the, the race of, I don't know, ethnicity, I guess we can call it, because they're all English, right? Or maybe, I think, I'm not sure. But, you know, I was thinking about that too, and um, I think it would be really fucked up if we were just like, no, we're just going to have everyone be white. <laughs> but by 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 changing that, I think that it's nice to have like a young girl of color as your protagonist because that's um that's very uncommon unless it is if it's an all-black cast it makes sense that you'd have like a small black girl 
Um, but this movie, it doesn't seem like only black people were its target audience, which is different. And I think that, I think so that like, I mean, for me, and I don't know what your experience is in this, but like, I didn't have any role models on screen my age when I was a child who looked like me. Girl, we looked the same, so. <laughs> I know, but I didn't know if you thought of someone that I didn't, because I was the Jasmine, kinda, and then when The Mummy came out, I was like, I'm her, I'm an Oxina Moon, that's me. No, that's really about all I, that's about all I ever got. And then I think once I got to that really vulnerable, like preteen stage, 9-11 happened and we were scared of brown people. So I really didn't get any brown badass women as role models because we were now afraid of them. So when I needed the role models, they're now the bad guys of the movie. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. They were the bad guys. So I don't know. I think it's kind of nice that like, I mean, I'm not saying that, like, there are a ton of young female protagonists at all, but uh, I can think of more white ones than brown ones. Also, I love that she had shaved natural hair. I think that's badass, too. I mean, I know I already said it, but, like, it was also natural. Yeah, and I think also, like, they picked a very, very thin little girl to pick to play this character because she would have had muscular atrophy. Yeah, she's an adorable girl, but, like, also it makes sense that, like, especially when she in her chair and her shoulders are up high. Like the first time we saw her, I was not confident she could walk. Like that's how that's how very very thin all of the children are. I mean, it turns out she's like a fucking powerhouse. So I was okay with the with the with the changing of them. I don't understand why Miss Justino needed to be white. I think that was more. I think it was just curiosity's sake of why the change there necessarily and her age. She's also much older in the book. And if that's one thing that we have a shortage of in Hollywood is any sort of like age diversity portrayal. There's definitely not many older women, especially, of course, you know, I was going to say older men, of course, you know, George Clooney, all of them, they're portrayed, you know, the older you get, you're a silver fox. If you're an old woman, get the fuck off my stage is kind of how it goes. So I think it would have been nice to have seen her as an older black woman in a film, just because that is one or the other, or even as both as originally written are both really lacking exposure and diversity. I didn't notice this till like the second time I watched it, but like she's sitting in her classroom after the students are, are going, are gone back to their cells on the board behind her. And like, you know how like when you write on a whiteboard and then you erase it, you can still read it if you're looking it just said in all big, bold, red letters, propagation. <laughs> and I was like, what is this doing in like a fifth grade classroom? I thought that was kind of cool, though, especially because I didn't notice it the first time. And I was like watching it like I couldn't look away from it. The movie itself inverts the power dynamic from the adults onto the children, which and I feel like that's how it is in life. Children have the power. They just don't have, we don't give them the authority to make decisions for themselves because they might mess up their future, I think. But I, it's much more likely that an adult is going to mess up a child's future than that a child is going to mess up his or her own future. That's super true. I think we're seeing a lot nowadays, you know, obviously I'm not going to get super politically in any way, shape, or form, but we are seeing a lot of kids step up now and... You know, I think that's cool, but also everyone's just like super surprised, I think, to see all these teenagers all of a sudden be super vocal and super opinionated. And I'm like, y'all, we keep feeding them all these badass teenage right. stories and dystopian novels and movies. Of course, they're going to uprise eventually. 
damn, guys. <laughs> Y'all have seen the Hunger Games? We've been training them to do this. Yeah, and I think this is the only thing, and Melanie shows this too, that children don't have that adults do have is experience. And so they haven't made like enough like low-risk bad decisions to be able to make high-risk bad decisions. What I think for me, part of what makes this really scary, the movie, is that, uh, well, the, the children are in charge. <laughs> they just are. Like, because they don't have the same vulnerabilities as the adults do. Which is also the case in life. <laughs> so the situation is like, there's a zombie plague. These children are found to have an immunity to it. Dr. Caldwell thinks that, like she even writes it down uh, when Melanie answers her riddle. Patient exhibits excellent imitative behaviors. Yeah, and so um, Melanie's like, what did you write down? And then Dr. Caldwell, because she doesn't think that Melanie is human, she thinks that she's the disease masquerading as a human, which, I'm sorry, like that, no, Dr. Caldwell, no. Just a flat no. You're, you're too science fiction here for this. Because this is the real world and this is like real shit that's happening. And Melanie understands what she's saying. Like, I think Dr. Caldwell is like, whatever, she doesn't get it. And Melanie's like, oh. And so later, Melanie follows up with that and she's like, do you still think that that's true? Uh, Dr. Caldwell is like, yes, you're not, you're, you're part human and uh, part uh, hungry. And, Mel and, you know, at first, Melanie is like, I don't want to be hungry. Like, I I'm human. I can talk. I can talk just like you. And Dr. Caldwell is like, no, it's not just like me. Because you have to eat other humans. And Melanie's like, no, I don't. Like, I don't have to. I've, you know, I've eaten other things that are alive. And uh, I think at that part is when, you know, Melanie's, like, listening to Dr. Caldwell. She's really a good listener. Like, she encodes everything. Like, she remembers shit and then draws her own conclusions from it which I feel like at that age like I wasn't I was just like just like a sponge just like soaking up everything having no independent thought just like whatever you tell me I'm going to incorporate I'm going to remember that shit and I'm going to be able to tell it back to you exactly like you told it to me but Melanie like she confronts Dr. Caldwell straight up which I guess is because Dr. Caldwell has been her constant antagonist and she's like why should we die to save you like you're not going to be able to repopulate we can Supports my point that all children are feral children. I'm just saying. <laughs> we found the title. <laughs> I love them for that. I love me some little badass kids who will, like, hear your argument and be like, cookies are bad for me, but what if I go, like, run around the house five times to, like, burn off? I'll be like, you're right. Get another cookie. And then give me a lap. Yep. <laughs> so, anyway, zombies. You're going to know more about this than I am. I only know the theory of it, and that's not that interesting. Well, okay. So the word, at least the word zombie was based on, you know, like Caribbean and West African. Ooh, movies. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, shit. No wonder everybody's scared of it. Brown people invented it? Oh, uh-uh. We can't have none of that. That's what I was going to say. It's the, vo the, the voodoo voodoo beliefs or whatever. So that's where the word zombie came from. And it referred to the body being revived and then like and enslaved in another body by a sorcerer. So, you know, it was black. It was black magic. You know, it was the voodoo. All the way down. Black all the way down. All the way down. Yeah. And so that's kind of where the word came from. And it wasn't really a known thing in America for two. You know, it wasn't like a popular belief, obviously. And then George Romero came out in the late 60s 
with Night of the Living Dead and kind of took the word zombie and attached it to brainless undead that eat flesh. And so that's kind of where our tradition of the word zombie came from now. Although, if you ask Romero, he's going to argue with you and he's going to say that they're not zombies, they're ghouls because he's intelligent and knows that, you know, this voodoo practice was not what he created. It's just kind of a word that got attached. So that's where our idea of what zombies are, basically. So it was a voodoo practice that got somehow rebranded in the late 60s by white people because of a, you know, of a movie. And But, you know, there's tons of different types of zombies. So you have the artificial zombie, like Frankenstein. You have your plague zombie, uh, you know, your flesh-eating zombies. You've got, like, the technically living zombies, which are more, you know, your reanimated corpse. Revenant zombies that have returned because of a reason, but they're still undead. And then there's the voodoo zombie, which is the flesh-eating zombie, or your Romarian zombie, which is kind of what we're getting in this movie. It's like a plague zombie slash the Romarian zombie. So uh, the only part of that that I was familiar with was the animated corpse, the reanimated corpse, sorry. And I think that I learned, I think it's from Powers of Horror, but I'm not sure. That book is a real tough read. Like, you have to kind of sit there and, like, hold your face open and hold your eyes open because it's not that, like, it's unintelligible. It's just that every word could mean more than one thing. So you have to kind of think about it. It's like reading a poem. It takes you, like, maybe 25 seconds to read a poem, but then you have to think about it for five days. From what I remember, I'm trying to synthesize this, um, reanimated corpses are scary because they used to be humans. Which is why zombies as a whole terrify the fuck out of me. Yeah, because they used to be humans. Humans are not okay with killing other humans. Um, and that's why so many people who have seen combat, you know, have, I mean, not the only reason, of course, and we're generalizing again, like I always do, but like, that's why so many people have post-traumatic stress disorder. Because they're not okay with, and they know, they know logically they did, you know, what they had to do. But like, I mean, and of course, again, overgeneralization, but like, can't, it doesn't sit well, even if you know you have to do well, it. Well, it goes back to the whole, you know, science or purpose and morality kind of thing. Like, you're somewhere, it's a spectrum. You're, everything you do is going to fall on it. Yeah, and so in most of our pop culture, zombie or ghoul, uh, like reanimated corpses, they're people you knew. And that's the scary part, and that's why you are kind of powerless against them. You have to, like, stab your mom in the head. That's what I asked Andrew. I was like, so if I was a zombie, would you shoot me? Because I feel like I would have a hard time shooting zombie Andrew in the face. I feel like shooting would be a lot easier than stabbing. It's true. But just in any way, just like, killing my zombie husband. So you would have to kill my zombie husband for me. Okay, no problem. I mean, I like him. He's great. I'm sorry. <laughs> I get what you're saying. I mean, obviously. But if you need me to kill your zombie mom, I've got your back. I mean, he helped me move. I mean, shit. He is good in my book. He is good for me. <laughs> he really did. Y'all, listen. Andrew had met me, like, maybe one or two times. And Megan was like, my friend Mary Kay needs, to, needs help moving. And he was like, okay. And then he backed that U-Haul full of my shit. My secondhand bullshit <laughs> furniture. Up your 90 degree angle driveway. Yes. It's a big, <laughs> it was a big ass. I don't live there anymore. So, oh my gosh. So great. 
But I would shoot him in the face if he was a zombie. I mean, I would expect you to. That's why you're such a great friend. (laughs) (laughs) I would do this for you, Megan. For you, I would shoot your zombie husband in the face. And then we will be even. (laughs) So about zombies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So these zombies are ghouls, I guess. Now I'm going to be self-conscious every time I say zombie. Like, is it though? Am I being racist? Like, which one is it? Um, Oh my gosh. Um, So these though, they're called hungries and they are not the horde. The horde is like the slow moving brains. Yeah. And they, yeah. And they um, are uh, thriller zombies, right? Like from Michael Jackson's thriller and their power comes from being in a big group. So they're crushing. So, but these zombies, oh my gosh, y'all, when we were in that operating room with Melanie on the table and what's her name? Dropping the blinds, like pushing the blind. <laughs> he was running at a full ass tilt. Y'all, I just feel like those zombies are like what Mario turns into when he eats the <laughs> mushroom. Bigger and faster. It's like, it's nuts. And they, the the regular hungries are like that all the time. They're just chompy and they go dormant when no one's around. And they like wake back up. Um, and they do still have hordes, but that's not really well explained. Maybe in the book, but not the movie. And I didn't read the book because I didn't want to be confused between that and the movie. I like the movie a lot. I think it stands alone. I mean, there's probably some plot holes where I'm sure everyone who read the book is super frustrated with it. You know, like it when somebody adapts your favorite thing into a, a film. But yeah, so when Dr. Caldwell explained this shit... I just kind of, I paused it and I just kind of sat there and I was like, this is what I wanted to be happening with Maggie on Walking Dead whenever she has those pregnancy complications or stuff or whatever that happened last season before I stopped watching. The first two seasons, excellent writing, airtight, and then it just kind of falls off like everything does. But but back to the zombies and the girl with all the gifts, the the part with uh, Melanie's kind of zombie. They find them when Sergeant Parks is looking for his pregnant wife in a maternity ward, which is a really sweet thing that we find out at the end. And much of me wants to believe that Melanie was his actual biological child. Oh my God, stop it. I never even thought about that. I really want that to be the case because he was so, so unnecessarily mean to her in the beginning that it almost seems like an overcorrection. That makes sense. I mean, there's no way of us... To, for us to know mine to know that and then like as soon as she goes on like the trek and eats a cat um and then comes back he's like good job which is like the most you can ever expect from a tough love guy you know she's real proud of herself you can see it all over her face she's like i did do a good ass job she doesn't say thank you or anything she's just like so the premise is that the pregnant women in the maternity ward were infected while they were pregnant. And then all of their babies developed, like their embryos, or uh, I guess, I don't know, what would you call them at that point? I'm not sure, but um, their unborn children inherited immunities or developed immunities from their mothers being infected, which is uh, the way that works. That makes sense to me, scientifically. And then Dr. Caldwell tells, and so Melanie, while Dr. Caldwell is telling her this, is like, babies don't eat people. That doesn't make any sense. And um, Dr. Caldwell goes, you're something in between. You're something that's never existed before. You ate your way out of your mother. Oh, God. That was my reaction to it. Yeah. Um, But that's when I wanted to be happening to Maggie on Walking Dead, but they won't listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) They're not answering my letters. 
Actually, I'm sure that someone like me came about that independent invention-wise, and they were like, um, someone's already copyrighted that right out of this plot. Like, you can't get out. Because I did think about that on that Walking Dead before I saw this. I was like, wouldn't it be dope if, if Maggie's kid was eating her way out of her? Like, she was already, like, it was a stillborn. The rules are a little bit different in that world. But anyway, so um, she also says, Melanie also, like, when she first eats that human, the, the soldiers, she falls asleep, which I guess is, you know, what happens after they're very uh, full. She tells Miss Jess to know, and they, like, kind of exile her away from them. She's like, I did something really bad. And Miss Jess knows, like, you saved me. You didn't. She's like, no, I, I ate some of those soldiers. And then uh, Miss Jess knows, like, no, you saved me, like, in your story. And Melanie was like, no, it wasn't, like, in my story. I'm the monster. And the little girl. So that's upsetting. But Melanie's not evil, though. It's just, like, the way she's programmed. It's, like, resetting the world, which is real interesting because... Here's the thing, though. Like, if there are no humans around, they never turn into hungries. So they're just normal kids. I mean, I think cats and other anim- animalia might turn them. But that's no different than any meat. There's no That's no different than any carnivore. I mean, it is, like, because it's more visceral. But, like... You're talking to the vegan. I don't know. So, <laughs> yeah. So we have a child zombie who is also not a reanimated corpse, which is real interesting to me. Dr. Caldwell gives her the riddle of Schrodinger's cat. There's a cat in a box. Is it alive or dead? And then Melanie's like, can I shake it? And Dr. Caldwell's like, no, it's a logic problem. And then uh, Melanie, because she's a child and innocent and also very, very precocious, she's like, well, I think it's it, it's either alive or it escaped. Dr. Caldwell is like, no, why do you say that? And Melanie's like, well, cats are really clever. <laughs> that's her reasoning. And I'm like, that's really true. And you see also, like, she has the pictures of the cat. And so she really likes cats, but then she eats one. So Dr. Caldwell answers, like, it's the cat's not alive or dead. It's just gone. Or that's what Melanie says to Dr. Caldwell. And Dr. Caldwell is basically like, subtext, no, you dummy. It's alive and dead. Yeah, it's both alive and dead. And then Melanie said, that's stupid. (laughs) Which I love. (laughs) Like, that doesn't make any sense. What's the point of thinking of that? I don't, like, so... Dr. Caldwell says, this is after she, you know, selected herself as number, like she called number four. Dr. Caldwell says, possibly, but that's what you came here for, isn't it? The answer, it's you, Melanie. In this analogy, you open the box and you find yourself there. Yeah, she is the cat. Yeah, it's a real mean thing to say to a kid. But before that, the other illusion that's relevant throughout this book is the story of Pandora. This this story goes, Miss Jessina reads it to them that like Pandora had all the gifts in the box or she opened it and then all the horrors of the world uh, flew out, but so did hope. They didn't tell you that and there. You just have to know that. You just have to know the illusion. And so the title, the girl with all the gifts. Yeah. She is Pandora. She is hope. Like she's the only one who has it, um, which we see. First of all, my favorite scene is after they find Kieran in the trap, like the feral children, the actual feral children have eaten him. Melanie's the first one to notice, like, this is also a trap. Yeah, <laughs> right? So she goes out, and all the kids are out there, and they have, like, this leader who's, like, a Rufio character. Remember from... He was me a Rufio. And also, all of the kids are nonverbal. They don't communicate uh, with language, which is what we typically associate zombies with. Like, if they can talk, then they're human. But if no one teaches you how to talk, you don't learn how to talk. Yeah, they just grunted and screeched. 
Yeah, but they're still communicating, communicating in an animalistic way. They don't have language because they're feral children. So Melanie gets on their level. She gets it right away. She's just really intuitive like that. And um, she steals the guy's baseball bat from him. They fight. She handcuffs him. She takes his baseball, baseball bat and beats the shit out of him until he's dead. And then intimidates all the other kids. Act like you're real afraid of me. Don't make eye contact. Let's go. She starts screaming, they're mine. And the sergeant goes, pretend. <laughs> pretend like we're afraid of you shit. So she rescues them that way, which I think is awesome. And I think that that is next level scary of like her being both the future and then also so savage as a child. Like she's just like, this is what I have to do. No remorse. Yeah, because Miss Justin kept shying away watching her beat that kid's head in. She, Melanie was just swinging. Yeah, and Miss Justin also has this idea in her head that Melanie's a child only. Children are feral children. I rest my case. What makes this zombie movement <laughs> of a stream of consciousness? What makes this zombie movie different? than other zombie movies. And I think I kind of answered that a little bit. And we, you know, you did as well about how these are like the next generation zombies. They were born like at this weird halfway point. But I also just thought it was a really cool, like random tidbit is that the type of zombies that they are, you know, like they're infected with like this plant fungal thing that essentially like controls their mind. And that's based on a real animal. It's a species of ants in Brazil, the zombie ants that have, that has like a fungus growing out of their heads that controls them. That was just a random tidbit that I thought that was cool. Fuck <laughs> me to death. That is horrifying. And I love it. <laughs> Google a picture of it later. Google a zombie ant. Zombie ant image. Ugh, you know I hate bugs. Why are you making me do this? What the shit? Ew. <laughs> no, it looks like a mushroom's growing out of their fucking head, dude. They have little trees growing out of their brains. <laughs> I had one of my students tell me about this. I've never seen pictures of it before. He, he said that the fungus controls their brain and makes them walk into the sunlight so that this fungus can grow better. That's fucking terrifying. Yeah. They walk around so the fungus can literally thrive, which is super crazy to me that that is a thing that is in our real life. That's not science fiction. That's not fantasy that's not a children's story. That's a real fucking animal. So which one is the animal, the fungus or the ant? Because that's, that's the dimension this is taking us in. Well, technically, the ant does have its own independent thoughts. Like, it does control its own life at times. It's like 75% ant, 25% fungus. But, like, maybe that ant is cooking dinner for his little ant family, then the fungus is like, I need sunlight, and makes him walk off a cliff to get sunlight. What happens when the ant dies? To I don't know. It's a symbiote, right? I want to err on the side of caution and morality and say that it's mostly ant. Just like I think that Melanie is mostly human. And I think Melanie is mostly human, especially because she does everything in her power to preserve the humans left while pursuing her own thing. I think so, too. I would agree with that. No, I definitely think she is more human than she is fungus. Yeah, there's also like the insect that kills cockroaches and lays in its brain. Oh, and it controls the... Roach's brain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, do whatever you want with cockroaches. Fuck them forever. They're nasty. The only way that cockroaches are not going to live forever is if some kind of plague like that hits them, like a zombie plague hits them. Look, I try to be a good person and not kill bugs. If I have a chance to take the bug outside, 
I, I make Andrew do it. Let me rephrase that. So like there was a little like tiny spider on the wall and I made Andrew like take it outside. Of course, like, and this is how, <laughs> but this is how I know he is like the world's greatest husband is he definitely squished the spider getting it, but he still walked outside and pretended to like shake it onto the ground. So I, so he was like, no, everything's fine. He's okay. Like he's great. So he definitely just pretended that he didn't blatantly squish that spider on the wall to take him outside. But like cockroaches burn them with fire. I don't care. Smash them, kill them. I don't want them near me. They all need to die. Nope. You shouldn't have been talking shit. You're dead. Uh-uh. No, don't come in my house. Nope, you're on my territory now. You dead. Too many knees. They have too many knees. <laughs> Spiders and roaches, too many knees. Flying bugs, like uh, ladybugs are fine. Moths, fine. Like I'd open the door and let them out before I would smush them because they're not doing anything. But no, their, their knees are offensive. For that, they shall pay with their life. <laughs> I cannot with them. And here's the thing though, right? They're fear they're fucking fearless and they're stupid. Because no matter how many cockroach corpses are outside <laughs> of your door. They're still coming in. Yeah. And me, I'm just thinking like, I'm gonna go into this mansion that seems abandoned. Oh, there's five human skeletons outside? Call an Uber. Take my ass <laughs> home. Take my happy alive ass home. Like that's what the fuck is happening. Another thing that I wanted to talk about though, because we got off track a little bit. Like we always do. Yeah, but I felt like it was worth going for because cockroaches to me are grosser than zombies. It's true. I agree. The part about when Dr. Caldwell tells Melanie, Melanie asks where did the, the babies, the baby hungries come from? And Dr. Caldwell says same with place as every other baby uh, by a slightly eccentric route. That's her direct uh, quote. She says the newborns were found in a maternity hospital. The mothers were there too. They were empty all their organs devoured. And then Melanie says, by hungries. And Dr. Caldwell says, no, from the inside. Melanie says, babies can't eat people. And Dr. Caldwell says, these ones did. Their mothers were probably all infected in one single thing. And the babies ate their way out. Gross. <laughs> and then Melanie, want to be hungry. And Dr. Caldwell says, but that's what you are. In dissection, it's very clear. The fungus is wrapped around your brain like ivy on an oak tree. Which to me means, uh, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a savage, so. Just say it, and if it's terrible, we'll come up with a better way to say it and then re-edit it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, so, pregnancy is kind of a host-parasite situation. No, it is. I mean, maybe not, in fact, because they're same species, but... I know like multiple women who have had children who kicked their ribs till they broke. And you see I me, mean, you hear women like going in, like getting all of these like pregnancy, diabetes, pregnancy, anemia, like all of these things based on their child. They keep you from drinking wine. Those little bastards. Oh my gosh. And caffeine. The, the nerve. The nerve of those little feral parasite children. <laughs> <laughs> these unborn son of a bitches. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it kind of, to me, is an extended metaphor for the sacrifice that mothers give their children. Uh, because these ones give it, you know, literally everything. Like, they, the babies survive at the cost of their mother's lives. But they're immune. I mean, that's ultimately what you want when you have a kid, right? Is to make them as prepared for the real world as possible. 
the current worlds, and then these babies are like, fuck this world, fuck y'all's world, I'm doing my own thing. Did you have a favorite moment? A favorite moment. I think my favorite part, and I think it's because she seemed the most, Melanie, she seemed the most like her age. I like when they were having her go off to see which roads were like clear. And she was like, can I have that little talking thing? Can I have the loud thing? He's like, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, you can have the loud talking thing. But he wasn't, but Sergeant wouldn't give him his. So he turns to Gallagher and is like, give her yours. <laughs> and he's like, what if she doesn't bring it back? And he's like, she's going to bring it back. <laughs> But she's walking and she's like right in front of him and there's all the static and she's like, this is Melanie on the talking thing. <laughs> yeah. What was your favorite part? Um, I think my favorite scene was, well, it's not my favorite scene, but I did forget to mention that um, I thought that the when Dr. Caldwell stops the baby carriage, I think everyone, especially not really understanding yet where the hungry, like the, the hungry children came from, expecting that infant to be like Melanie. And so that was, I think, the point of having that baby carriage there. However, it was not. I know, but if I had written it, that's what it would have been. An actual baby? Yeah, a baby hungry that smelled them and couldn't get to them. Oh, I like that. But then, I mean, I feel like that also would have set Dr. Caldwell up for, like, a whole new, like, vaccine. And the movie would have never ended. Yeah, like, if it had been a mini series, made the baby a hungry, um, the infant baby. But I think my favorite scene... Well, I really like it when anything the sergeant does, because he's a straight man. You know, like, he doesn't think anything's funny. Everything's just happening at him. But I like it when Melanie has, like, befriended Gallagher or Kieran or whatever. And she's talk- she, t- she calls him by his first name in front of the sergeant. And he goes, oh, Kieran told you that? Kieran did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she just kind of takes it in stride and Gallagher's like, whoops. I like the whole movie. Like, I could watch it endlessly it's so good it was really good i liked it it was a good pick thank you this is my pick yeah i i had something else picked and i watched this and i was like nope this one this one first so next is american psycho that's april 6th and that was my pick oh dear so stupid excited about it so i guess we're done talking (laughs) (laughs) about the girl and all the gifts we hit everything well i hope you guys come back for first American Psycho, and uh, and then after that we have The Road, and then I know it's super far out, but then like back to back, we have like two really badass choices: Rosemary's Baby, and then and then Alien. Yeah, more pregnancy fear. What, <laughs> what is going on with us, dude? Our subconscious is speaking. Very thinly veiled subconscious. I'm just going to say that we should all be grateful for the easy accessibility of contraceptives in our current culture. (laughs) It makes us able to be almost as irresponsible as men can be. (laughs) And on that note, all children are feral children. (laughs) Okay, bye. (laughs) Okay, see you later. Thanks for listening. (laughs)